Hey, hey, Changemaker, welcome to Rethink Social Change Podcast, a show dedicated to helping social change practitioners improve the way they make change happen to achieve tangible and sustained impact. I'm your host, Ratiba Sharif. I've worked with some of the world's leading social change organizations for more than two decades on four continents to help them design better projects, learn from them, and measure their results. Using Rethink Social Change cards, I will challenge changemakers like yourself to share their experience on what worked, what didn't, and why in a very unique way. I will shuffle the deck of 54 Rethink Social Change cards and randomly draw four cards that will guide our conversation. So if you're ready for unscripted, jargon-free stories from the field, let's dive into today's episode. Today's guest is Ian Hopwood, and before he joins me, I want to say a few words about him. Ian is one of those living libraries you seldom meet in your life. His wide and varied experience of evaluation and development practice have made our conversations and collaborations quite rich over the last 14 years that I've known him, and I wanted to share that with you. Ian's experience ranges from program planning and implementation to policy analysis and advocacy, mostly in areas of health, education, uh, social protection, child protection. Uh, he's been three times UNICEF country representative, where he led country teams in the design and implementation of cooperation programs. In the late 90s, he was uh, chief of evaluation at UNICEF uh, headquarters, where he led the development of UNICEF's evaluation policies and procedures where he also commissioned and coordinated major evaluations. So he's got that big picture view, the whole development life cycle, of many life cycles. <laughs> and since 2008, he's focused on teaching and advisory work on policy formulation and implementation, as well as development of national systems and capacities regarding both evaluation and child and youth issues. Let's get him in. Ian Hopwood, thank you so much for joining me on another episode of Rethink Social Change. Thanks for accepting the challenge of seeing what the card draw will bring out and where our conversation will take us. Thanks for the opportunity of an adventure. <laughs> You're very welcome. All right, so I am going to, um, you know a little bit about the cards there. It's a deck of 54 cards. They're split into seven different categories. I'll use five categories to draw three cards, which I will show you, and another two categories that I'll draw a card from, which I won't show you, and I will use later on in the conversation to deep dive a little bit more, okay? So I'm just going to shuffle here the cards. While I shuffle, uh, I hear you just came back. You're based in Dakar. Uh, you just came back to Dakar. That's right. Yes. From a trip in the U.S.? Yes, yes. How's it going? Is, uh, is Dakar calm these days? Dakar is calm. It's Sunday. It's quiet. Uh, even in the week, it's quiet for the moment. But uh, we're keeping our fingers crossed. Okay, great. Okay, so I'm going to just uh, pick some cards here, um, random cards, and then I will start the, uh, the conversation. Let's take a change here. Okay, so I've got three cards, and I will draw my bonus card or trump card here. Oh, there's one that fell off. I'm just going to keep it there for me. And I'll show you what cards we have for our conversation, Ian. We're talking about the political context. Oh, yes. Okay. Okay. So here, this card is inviting us to think about governance, about institutions, about political structures at different levels, central and decentralized level as well. Oh, in terms of people, stakeholders, we've got the donors card. Okay. 
So these are the these are institution states who fund projects, social change, development, etc. So a key actor in the aid industry. Oh, and then in terms of change, we're going to talk about organizational change. And in this one, where this card is inviting us to think about administrative or even functional changes. Okay, so I'm going to show you the cards again. Yes. Political context. Yes. Donors. Yes. And organizational change. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I've noted I've no, that. Keep them up a little bit. As you start telling me if these cards, these words, trigger any thoughts. If you were to think a little bit about your very rich experience. No, they trigger a lot of thoughts because they're so closely connected. Partly because the political context is the central context. Politics, it's about power, and it is that which determines uh, the future of our societies, the future of the world, the future of our organizations. It's the politics. Uh, it's not the technical stuff, and technical people have a lot of problems dealing with politics. So we have to have a good political sense. And then the donors that are also donor politics, and the donors have resources. So politics is about, is about resources. It's about access to resources, allocation of resources, uh, the way in which resources are mobilized and shared within societies, between societies. So the politics and the donors are very much uh, interrelated. Um, and then organizational change is the thing which we often talk about because we know our organizations are sometimes uh, ill-equipped for the current challenges. They are a product of past decisions and past politics. And very often the uh, constraints to the change are to do with politics and to do with donors. Or sometimes we're going in the wrong direction with the change because we're trying to accommodate a certain number of dimensions, which may not be the central ones when it comes to what people and societies really need. So the three are very closely related. So I think you made a great choice. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't make the choice. <laughs> they were randomly. Well, uh, they were randomly picked. The random uh, choice Ian, then. Was the question that comes to mind is that oftentimes donors do fund organizational change specifically. They do want institutions to improve their systems, do they improve their processes, regardless of the institution. I've worked more at kind of community level. You have come to work at more at national level and ministerial level, etc. Yet the politics do come into play. And I wanted to know more in to, to what extent do they come into play? And maybe we could talk about it from the donor's perspective and then from the recipient's perspective. Okay, I, I think that's a good point. I, I think that quite a lot of international cooperation in the areas that I'm familiar with, particularly with child and youth development, and in general, quite a lot of these initiatives do have within them uh, elements of uh, organizational change, policy reform, and, and, and so on. So we are often pursuing these reforms, these changes, but very often change does not occur in the way which we expect, the way which we wish. And this is for a whole number of reasons. And this applies both to governments and to the donors who are working with African governments, because we're talking primarily about West Africa, where I'm based. And we talk, and donors, of course, are also representatives of governments. So we have governments of the North, governments of the South. There's a dialogue about change. And very often the donors have a certain number of changes or reforms, which an organizational changes, which they wish to uh, implement. And these don't work. And they very often don't work, I think, because uh, we just 
do not approach the reforms in, in the right way. Uh, we need to build on what is already existing. We need to be much more sensitive and aware of what are the change, the movements for change within countries and not try to bring formulas or recipes that might have a good technical validity. They may be based upon some broader academic analysis and so on. But really, what really counts is the way that one constructs the change, the way one makes it happen. And one has to build. One has to work with the people in the country. And one has to learn incrementally. One has to take risks. One has to tackle unknowns, which we, we don't do uh, necessarily. So, uh, so I think that these are some general thoughts about the process. And very often, I think, the intention is too short term. We think that by with a particular aid program or a capacity development initiative over a year or two or three, one could bring meaningful change. One cannot bring meaningful change in this period. One can bring changes in administrative measures. One can bring uh, sometimes even a law or a policy can be approved, but it doesn't permeate. It doesn't, it doesn't go down through the system. It doesn't get really owned and on the agenda. Uh, in the way that it has to, in order to really bring about the desired changes. So you often have a situation where you have stroke of the pen measures, measures that can be quite easily implemented and so on. But then the accompanying processes of ownership and where the underlying principles and the underlying philosophy behind these reforms are not properly understood. So we end up in a situation of sort of uh, compliance of acting as if things were really changing when they're not really changing. But what is changing is just the way in which we organize sometimes. Or the, the, we change the vocabulary, we don't change the thinking. And I think that's the case with some of the work, for example, on results-based methods and performance management, where we think that if we can change the way that documents are drafted and we can change the way that the outputs and outcomes are uh, specified and we can change the responsibility trees within organizational uh, charts and so on, that we sort of are changing the way people think. And it is not. People will continue to do what they know how to do, what they've always done, what they're comfortable with doing, and what also, in a sense, protects their particular interest. So I think we have a lot of lessons to learn about this whole issue of institutional reform, policy reforms, organizational changes on the part of everybody. And changes are very often tied up with individuals, individuals who are motivated, who have charisma, have leadership, who have a certain direction in which they wish to go. I think that's very important. But then we have to try to work with these people within countries to make sure that the reform does not live and die with that particular individual that the individual commitment is extremely important and it's often at a political level. We have to have people who are intermediate, who are, who are, who could bring change, change makers. But at the same time, we need to find a way of institutionalizing that. And this means we have to take account then of the various dynamics, the various interest groups, because we can't ignore the fact that people can only do what is achievable within the limits of politics and resources in a given environment. And if we don't take account of that, the reform will die or the leaders of the reform will not succeed. And of course, most of the time, most reforms do not succeed. In fact, you know, there are a lot of people writing about why most things don't work. If you want to bring about change in a very difficult, very, very menacing, very difficult environment, then you have to be prepared sometimes to accept failure. And that's, again, what donors 
and which governments are not prepared to recognize. There will be times when don't work and we have to learn the lessons. So I'm sorry, I'm getting very carried away with the topic, but I mean, those are just some quick thoughts. This is perfect. Thank you so much. No, I didn't want to kind of, um, you know, um, stop the flow of your of your thoughts, but you did raise a number of things that I'd like to come back and touch on a little bit more. The first one is the mention of the word owned. It, they need to be owned. And I think that's an important one because ownership at local level, at country level, at uh, decentralized level, etc., for any organizational change, comes with that real inclusion from the beginning, from the inception of the idea of bringing about organizational change, that it needs to be owned and requested by whoever's receiving the money or the support or the technical support, etc., because their engagement is going to be key. How often have you seen in your career, the real involvement upstream in the design, the, a reflection on what it will entail for change to happen and how that change is envisioned to be, uh, how will it unfold? Because oftentimes there's a divergence between what donors perceive as being how change will happen and how the recipients envision change to happen. Some of it has to do with timing, short term versus longer term. Some of it has to do with the political nature, the link between the change, the institutional change, and the politics, the political dynamics at play at local level. I wanted to see if you could speak to that a little bit and also maybe provide examples, if you can remember of any example. I think I'd make a a few points about that. When we're talking about change in the organization of services or of systems and so on, One thing that I think all of us find it hard to deal with is that very often we don't know. We don't know how fast we can go. We don't even know where we're actually going to end up precisely, although we have some general idea of the things we want to try to achieve, the sort of new configuration, whether it's decentralization, whether it's uh, whatever it may be. We have a general idea, but we don't have a blueprint. We don't know the different stages. We don't know how they're going to take. And we have to be very agile. We have to seize opportunities. And we have to work in a situation where there's strong mutual confidence that we can share the difficulties and the bottlenecks and so on and find solutions. I remember working in Guinea, for example, working on very significant reforms in the health sector. And we were able to operate there without necessarily knowing exactly where we're going to end up. We had a good technical team who were working together, the Guinean technicians, WHO, UNICEF, one or two other groups, Médecins Sans Frontières, there was a World Bank project too. And we were trying to work together. GEIZ was also involved, working together collaboratively to relaunch the system. But firstly, we had to establish, I think, strong confidence between the various players that we're all united, not in defending our own organizational agendas or we're not out to promote. At that time, UNICEF was really very focused on immunization. I had, first of all, to make sure that the Italian ambassador who's funding it and the UNICEF headquarters who were pushing it really understood that there was no no way that we could improve immunization in Guinea on a sustainable basis without reforming the organization and functioning of the health system at local level. We had to rebuild confidence, and we had to do that with the Guinean technicians. We had a wonderful Minister of Health, Professor Fatih Diallo. If there was a problem in the progress and so on, as I was driving to work, I could stop by at the ministry, 
go up the stairs at eight o'clock in the morning, he'd be at his desk and we would solve the problem. So I, I think this notion and this whole drive is not one where we are saying, well, we have a good idea. Why don't we do it together? Or this is the latest policy coming from WHO UNICEF, where we really were trying to do it in a way which made sense not only to the health minister, which was part of the agenda of the health minister, but also the decentralization ministry, who said, wow, this is the way we can give a real sense to decentralization in the eyes of the people in, in the country who have lost faith in the central government, who've lost confidence. It was just after the difficult periods, the end of the secretary regime and so on. And we wanted to rebuild confidence at local level. So I think it really is finding a way of connecting with national agendas, working with people like Pate Diallo and others who are real leaders of reforms and change and adapting our approach then, whatever we bring, in a way which is modest, which is not calling the shots, which is not being the program of UNICEF or of WHO, but where we work together in a way. And I remember that the WHO rep, Benin, Dr. Gantin, said to me just before he passed away, very sadly, he said, Ian, you know, we had a, a wonderful opportunity to work together with Bati Jalo, and it was really a wonderful experience. You know, so those are some examples. I and this has to be continued over time. It's not something you would do in three months or six months. We worked together on that for two to three years, developing the methods, developing the approaches. It didn't solve all the problems. And 10 years later, they were, they were still in problems, but at least we had taken the, uh, from, from one level to another. And I also had a lot of experience in Zambia with health reforms. None of it was perfect. None of it was really totally lasting and enduring. But at least it gave a whole generation of people from the country the opportunity of really trying to bring meaningful change. And I think that was a great privilege that I had at that time. Mm -hmm. In here you speak now, and I'm thinking that uh, people are important. Who is at the decision-making level are important. The fact that you had direct access to uh, an engaged and committed minister is kind of helped the process along, right? It opened up doors. It uh, it was an entry point that was marvelous, right? For that, uh, sometimes it's not easy to have a minister who's engaged really in the project, but also who stays long enough because you build trust, you get to know these ministers, and unfortunately, especially in the in recent years, there's a lot of turnover. And in those countries, you have to start from scratch, right? You have to re-establish relationship, build rapport, gain trust. Um, explain the project, where it's anchored in the needs that were uh, suggested by the government, etc. So it's not always a given unless you have these champions within government at key positions who can really drive change with you. I agree with that entirely. And I think one of the important things when you're trying to work uh, in a level where you're trying to promote and support changes and reforms is to really make sure that you understand that the system has very different levels and each level is important. And I think that you and your team have the duty and responsibility to get to know the different levels who will be observing you. And there are patterns of communication and the relationships you don't even know between the, uh, the chief medical officer in this district and the director in this other department and the minister and so on. People communicate in different ways and you're not necessarily always knowledgeable or informed about that. But people observe, and they might not tell you directly, but they see what you're saying, what you're doing, and how you're doing it. And I think one has to build that credibility at every level, because everybody has to play a part in that. And I think also uh, people at one level can become leaders of change at another level. 
For example, we did work in West Africa, looking at Benin, looking at Congo, Brazzaville, looking at Guinea and so on, that the German cooperation in particular had been supporting district health programs, even in situations where these regimes were not very popular. It was the Kerekou, communist Kerekou, and the socialist in Gwabi and so on, but they were supporting programs. So when change comes, when there's an opening, when there's a desire for reform on the part of government, these people who've been working at that level uh, then, you know, very often find themselves another level. So I think it's important that we don't just focus on trying to talk to the minister or have the audience or share the latest policy document, but we really try to operate at different levels and help those in the different levels to have a voice at the higher levels as well, to break some of the barriers which do exist sometimes because of hierarchy, because of communication problems. If we can be a way in which a promising experience can be given a bit of visibility in the eyes of the senior authorities or the finance people, then I think, so we just have to be very much aware that don't take people at face value where they're sitting at the present time or in the way they're performing now and I've also had experience of people living in one function, but at the same level, when the situation has changed, they've had some budget, they've had some mission, those same people who are really not very effective and very passive become real leaders and so on. So I think when we talk about capacity in particular, a lot of the analysis that wasn't capacity and so on, I think that we, we never, we do not take enough time to really figure out what is really the capacity in the country. And there's usually a lot more than we believe. And some of it is latent, some of it needs to be triggered, needs to be given some encouragement, few resources, and so on. So I think liberating, mobilizing, motivating country capacity, providing a little bit of extra resources and so on, helping to move it further, a bit faster. These are all part of this process of capacity and confidence. And the political will, it, it, we talked about, I mean, this is also about political will. It, it's helping to build an approach which will be supported by not only the other political leaders at the central level, but also by the population. Then, of course, you begin to get movement. But if you have something which is going to be not perceived as being useful and relevant, but some imported formula because of some international resolution or discussion, you will get a lot of pushback. So I think it really is its the way that we handle things, the way in which we, we under what is the policy agenda, how it is shaped, how it is formulated, and whose agenda is it. Mm-hmm. Very good. The, uh, you just, uh, said the, talked about formula and earlier on you said, you know, there, we, we shouldn't import these recipes and try to kind of force them on the country, on a system, et cetera. And then you also mentioned that we don't have a blueprint, but this kind of brings to, to mind a few questions on institutional, um, you know, learning how we do learn. So we we usually, donors function or even uh, organizations, they test processes even in different contexts. They learn lessons, adapt and try it again in another context. That's how it's done. In some sectors, it's um, it's easier to do because it's kind of more streamlined, health sector, education sector, etc. Others like social change, social cohesion, social dynamics is less easy to do. But how do you then uh, ensure that it's adapted to the context and the dynamics of that context, but yet that you have some guarantee that it will function because you've tested it elsewhere? Yes, that's a very good question. I think many of the exercises that I'm talking about, things I've been part of, there has been a strong learning through doing, learning through experience and so on, 
moving on a phased expansion, starting out with a certain number of districts or a certain type of activity, and then adding on layers. So there are ways of operating which can already have within them, if one has an open mind, if one is prepared to take the uh, to take the risk of, of really admitting that some things don't work so well and so on. I think one can have learning through doing, but it's also true that you can't just jump in. So what we were doing, I think we were doing two things in Guinea. First of all, we drew inspiration from the work in Benin. Professor Aliono and the, the project there that they were running, uh, we had a couple of study visits. So we have lateral learning, experience sharing between countries as to how certain approaches have been operating in other countries. So that's one thing which can be extremely helpful. The other thing we built into, we built into existing knowledge, but adapting it to the country level. For example, we built into a lot of the work going on in WHO and the essential drugs program. We had so we had a very close contact with people in Geneva, would occasionally visit and so on. We were working a little bit in connection with the Institute of Tropical Medicine in Antwerp, where they've had a lot of work on decentralized district management, the use of uh, uh, diagnostic charts as well for uh, providing uh, medication, you know, uh, decision trees and so on, or genograms and so on, to giving, to using. So we were, in a sense, building on the driving force was the national context and the national challenges and the abilities and capacities of the nationals we're working with. But we were able to enrich in that and to broaden it in the ways I've described drawing upon knowledge centers, knowledge hubs elsewhere that could bring to bear their knowledge and understanding through short visits or attending a webinar or looking at the documentation, experience exchange between countries. The thing which I think we were probably not as good at probably was the more formal evaluation practice. I think in experiences I've had, that was emerging and was not really all that present. Although it did have a role. Part of the work in Guinea was started out by an evaluation of the immunization program. And the evaluation was done with the Guinean counterparts on the ground. So we together with them witnessed the total collapse of the system and the vaccination program. So on the basis of that report, rather than just coming out with a set of recommendations and leaving it, you know, I was able to, to encourage the team to continue working for an additional week after that first evaluation to say, well, okay, what do we do? And what we had to do was we had to mobilize staff, motivate staff, and get essential drugs in the health centers. If you didn't get drugs in the health centers, they would have no credibility with the population, and you could preach prevention and vaccination and so on. So, you know, evaluation played its role, but not quite in the formal way that sometimes it does. And uh, I think as times have changed and as the world moves on, I think we just have to be more open and more uh, better prepared to bring in a more structured evaluative uh, dimension. Yeah, thank you. You're closing the loop there with uh, learning evaluation and informing new programming and make it more um, grounded in the reality and in the context and the capacity that exists on the ground. Ian, before we close, I wanted to show you again the three cards. So it's political context, donors, organizational change. And I'm going to show you now the Trump card that I had or the bonus card. And it's a qualify card where we talk about obstacles. What are some of the obstacles that remain <laughs> These are the hindrance to or spoilers of different initiatives and interventions on the ground. Obstacles. Wow. <laughs> Obstacles. Big question. I think that one of the, um, I mean, there are several obstacles, but one thing we can't ignore is the resource issue. There's no doubt for countries in West Africa, 
Your total national budget is maybe $400, $500 per head per year. Your health budget is maybe $50 per head per year. If you throw in a little bit of extra aid and so on, maybe 60 or 70. But the resource gap between the stated policy objectives, available resources, even if we eliminate all leakage, all mismanagement is still huge. And, you know, it's a sign of the global injustice, the global systemic gaps which exist between the African countries, West Africa and the North. So I think resources, we, and a lot of the problems we are about competition for resources and so on, and that's a huge obstacle. The second obstacle, I think, which is very important also, is the mindset of organizations who are trying to face the problems of today, the huge challenges of healthcare, of education, of climate change, of poverty, and so on, require a different mindset, an openness, an approach, a horizontal approach to sharing and working together with people from different disciplines, different backgrounds, and different, uh, different perspectives. And we have systems which still favor silos. So people are sitting in boxes, they're not sharing, they're not working together, very often they're competing. And also, I think that uh, we have, we still have a bureaucratic mindset where the, uh, we want to plan things out in a blueprint. We want to have a measurable and, uh, you know, uh, foreseeable objectives and goals over a five year period and so on. And this is really inconsistent with what is required in many circumstances where we have to be prepared to innovate, prepared to take risks, uh, prepared to step outside the conventional way of doing things. And I think there's not a lot of institutional incentive to doing that. I think institutional incentives are still about being faithful to the national policy or the international policy, you know, getting the reports in on time, pleasing the hierarchy and so on. Generally, if you're doing a good job, you're going to have a few fights with your hierarchy. Learning happens on the ground and learning happens when you step outside the usual conventional frameworks. Try to do it not too often. And try to do it when you've got a little bit of cover behind you, either with your government counterpart or with one or two people in the hierarchy so you don't get entirely isolated. And try to do that learning with one or two immediate partners, either from the government side or the international side. I mentioned a lot WHO because I've always worked very closely with WHO, but it could be other agencies too. And in some circumstances, it can be the World Bank. They're not the most popular uh, organization in many countries, but I've had very good relations with one or two other people there working on social action programs, health, and so on. So try to find a way of moving forward and overcoming that obstacle. So I would say mindsets, bureaucracy, fear of failure, uh, unwillingness to take risk, resource constraints. These are some of the obstacles. And I think also just the desire of planners to have standard models. Every country is special. Every region of the country is special, and we spend a lot of time trying to find a formula. And in reality, you have a plan for a district healthcare within, if you have 50 districts within six months, you have 50 different plans and approaches because people will adapt whether you like it or not. And we have to really make more space for this adaptation and take people's creativity as a starting point, not as some sort of obstacle which prevents us having a standardized approach, which is easy to evaluate and to assess. So I think those are just some thoughts about uh, obstacles. I think also hierarchies, gender obstacles, giving more space to young professionals, giving more voice to women and young people. Uh, clearly, it, it, it's a slogan, but it really it's, it has a meaning too. It really, it really gives a stronger dimension to what we're doing if we can engage and open to that uh, group of the population.
Thank you. It's such a refreshing perspective that you give and an invitation to really think of all the possibles to be inclusive in nature, to be agile, and basically it's to be present and grounded within that context and kind of feel it and feel the dynamics and adapt to it while you keep in mind that vision of change that you want to bring about. So it's keeping that kind of North Star, right? But being able to adapt and bring people in as they wish to see things. And I think we're a long way from a really uh, inclusive, agile way of doing business in this field. We're still very much constrained by very clear frameworks. So this is a great invitation, I think, Ian, to close this conversation with this invitation to, to think of all the possibles and just to be present and in connection with the community. I mean, you are very, you've worked very much in uh, a lot in Africa, uh, West Africa. You've stayed, remained after your retirement in West Africa. So you're really engaged in, in, uh, in that vision and that mindset as well. So uh, kudos to you for that. And recognize that we don't know. Be prepared to recognize that we don't know, that we don't have all the answers, that there are multiple solutions. And we have to keep on learning doesn't matter where we are in our careers, what age we're at, keep on learning, recognizing you don't know, and being humble, I think, about these things. So, And there are multiple solutions. There's not one single solution. Get away from that. This is the solution. No, there are going to be multiple solutions to all these issues. None of them are perfect. Thank you so much, Ian, for your time, for your insights, for sharing so openly uh, your experience and uh, and the lessons that you've learned along the way. Thank you so much for that. Well, thank you for the opportunity and good luck. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Rethink Social Change Podcast. I hope you got a lot of value and actionable insights from today's show. Would love if you take a minute to leave us a review. And if you work on social change and are up for the challenge, reach out. And before you go, be sure to subscribe so you're the first to know when we release a new episode. Till then, be the change.